Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. This week on the podcast, I sit down with Stephanie Hone to talk about her story, The Smartest Girl in Jail, which she told live on stage at the Top Hat Lounge in Missoula, Montana, back in October of 2012. I've just had unusual experiences or, you know, bad experiences that people would like to pretend aren't something happening in their community. So I kind of wanted to tell that just to be like, hey, just so you know, like this is this is what's happening, you know, here. That's this is what it's like for people. The theme that night was forgiveness. We also talk about her band, her podcasts, and how things in the system don't seem to have changed much since she was 16. Thank you for joining me as I take you behind the scenes at Tell Us Something to meet the storytellers behind the stories. In each episode, I sit down with Tell Us Something storyteller alumni. We chat about what they've been up to lately and about their experience sharing their story live on stage. Sometimes we get extra details about their story and we always get to know them a little better. Before we get to Stephanie's story in our subsequent conversation, we will be in person for the first time since August 2021. We are running at 75% capacity, which allows for listeners to really spread out at the Wilma. Learn more and get your tickets at logjampresents.com. Stephanie Hone shared her story in front of a live audience at the Top Hat Lounge in Missoula, Montana on October 9th, 2012. The theme that night was forgiveness. Free from jail at 16, Stephanie faces a corrupt system and overcomes an inept foster parent. Stephanie calls her story the smartest girl in the jail. Thanks for listening. I got out of prison when I was 16 and I moved here. Um, to go to college. I finished two years of high school in six months because I was the smartest girl who'd ever been at that prison, which is possibly not a compliment. (laughs) Um, But it's something that the program director told me when I left. And I got out of a van with no handles on the inside, the good food store parking lot, so I could meet my foster mom and we could have small talk for an hour and then go to my parole meeting and pretend like we uh, met before, which worked well. I got to sit there at a table with five adults that I'd never met before telling me all of the ways that I could go back to jail. Most of them seemed to include uh, Maureen not liking me or me uh, not being able to find a job. And I came out with five dollars and the clothes that I was wearing. And I think I also maybe had chapstick um, because that's what I had when I got arrested. And that's what I had when I moved here. So Maureen took me to Ross or something to pick out some clothing so that I could um, have something professional to wear to try to get a job and begin paying my way as soon as possible because she didn't want to do it. And I was sitting in the dressing room looking at myself and I could see like so clearly what a big hole I was in because I didn't know how to do any of those things. I didn't know how to tell them what they wanted to hear or how to get a job or I don't know how to make people like me. So I stayed in there and I cried for as long as I thought I could get away with. And then I went back out there. But eventually I, I did manage to get a job and start going to college and all of those things. But the main problem was Maureen because she was very unstable. Um, she'd pick me up from work a lot of the times, really smashed, tell me a bunch of strange stories and then try to take me to bars and not understand why I didn't want to go with her. She'd be like, no, come in. Don't you want a beer? No. Why not? 
I'm, I'm 16 and on parole, Maureen. I, I don't want to <laughs> go in the bar with you. Um, and then she would cheat at pool, which is not necessary when you're playing pool with me because I'm horrible at pool. And she would still lose. And then she would try to get me to drive her car home. And I still don't know how to drive. And um, then we would go home, and she would spend the entire next day in bed crying until I had to call her sister to come and take care of her. So I was trying to talk to my parole officer about this, and I got halfway into the story, and he stops me. And he looks at me, and he says, Maureen is more important to us as a foster parent than you are as a kid in our program. And if there are any problems with her, and you cannot live there anymore, I'm not going to find you another placement. You can just go back to jail. So I took that to mean, hey, Stephanie, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so I did. Um, and I didn't tell him anything else about her. And it seemed like things were, were going okay. Um, she decided that she was going to go to AA because every time that she freaked out, it seemed like she was drinking. So she's like, oh, maybe there's some connection between this. Um, <laughs> But one night, we were supposed to go to a movie together, and she decided that she didn't want to go, that she wanted to go out drinking with a friend from out of town. Um, she's like, you know, I'll pick you up after the movie. Just call me. Oh, good. So you'll be drunk then and driving you. That's awesome. Uh, but I called her after the movie, and she comes and picks me up, completely smashed, and grabs me by the arm, like, for emphasis. She's like, Stephanie, Stephanie, I fell in love tonight. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, and proceeds to tell me about some girl that she met at the bar that she's going to go back and steal away from her boyfriend. Um, no previous lesbian tendencies there, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, the only problem is I have to work at 8 o'clock in the morning the next day, and my work is all the way across town, so I'm a little worried. It's like, Marina, are you going to be okay to drive me home tomorrow? Because it's, it's 2 right now, and I have to to work at 8. She's like, no, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine. If there's another lady in the sheets with me, congratulate me. She actually did the finger guns, that's not, I didn't add that. <laughs> I was like, oh god, I do not want to see that at all. <laughs> so I wake her up the next morning, thank god alone, and she takes me to work and it seems like it's fine. I mean, she's a little drunk still, but it's like Sunday morning, there's no other cars, and she asks me what she should bring me when I'm going to get off work. So I was doing a double shift. I had to go to the other store. Um, I was like, coffee. You should bring me coffee. She's like, okay, I'm going to bring you coffee. It seems fine. I get about halfway through my shift, and I get this phone call. Um, and it's Maureen. She's speaking really fast. And it sounds like she's, like, outside or something. Like, the phone's all crackly. And she just starts, like, speaking all in a rush. It's like, Stephanie, Stephanie, Stephanie. I have to go see my mom. I have to go see my mom right now. I was like... Like, like, now, now? She's like, I don't know. I'm on my way to the airport. I'll call you back. Click. Just, like, looking at the phone. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to jail. I, I am going to jail. I am going to fail college and get fired. And I'm going to go to jail. <laughs> um, so I look at the phone for, like, you know, a couple of seconds. Decide there's not really anything I can do about it. Put it back and go back to work. Um, I get about halfway through the day. And Maureen's boss and her best friend Jocelyn calls me. And she's like... Hey, is Maureen picking you up today? She's like, I don't think so. She's like, yeah, me neither. Because her mom just called me from Indiana. And she said that she's there. And um, I don't know where her car is. Also the dog. Um, so yeah, what do you want to do about that? It's like, um, well, if you could just give me a ride to work, that would be cool. 
Uh, so that happens. And so about a month ago, I was walking down the street, and I run into her. And we made eye contact and then couldn't take it back. So we had to talk to each other. And she, she seemed eager in a strange way to, to, to sit down and have coffee with me sometime. And it didn't seem like it was coming from her, so I kind of got the impression that she was on the ninth step. But um, I sit down and I have some coffee with her. And it's about like I thought. She starts telling me about how every night in her room she was drinking by herself and she never mentioned it to anybody. You know, she'd had like a history of mental problems. It's like, I'm shocked. Um, but she, she's asking me if I could forgive her. But even as she's saying it, she's almost taking it back. She's like, oh, I feel like I wasn't a very good big sister to you. I'm like, oh, I like how you're minimizing your responsibility in this situation, even as you attempt to take some sort of responsibility. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, she seemed, she seemed to need it. So, so I gave her my forgiveness, but I don't think that it meant anything. Um, so, so what actually happened was uh, she didn't ruin my life. She actually ruined hers because uh, Maureen was a social worker here in town, and she could no longer get a job after that here, so she had to move in with her parents and spend five years going to nursing school, which I thought was a poor career choice for somebody like her because... Um, People die in hospitals, and I don't know how well that would work for her. But regardless, that was her, her decision. Um, after that, I was kind of my parole officer's like golden girl. He got like copies of my SAT scores and my college transcripts and like put them on his wall like there were some child's crayon drawings or something. <laughs> and would tell everyone about what a success I was, as if he had been some kind of assistance to me instead of a constant hindrance. Uh, and I got to sit down at those meetings with the five people that I didn't know and be asked, like, well, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us that she was so unstable? It's like, I did. I told you. You told me not to tell you anything else, so I didn't. Um, and I think maybe guilt was his motivating factor for trying to be nice to me after that. Uh, I ran into him a while ago, and he said that he mentions my story in the talks that he gives about being a parole officer as if, you know, he played some role. Uh, something interesting that Maureen did tell me was that I'm apparently the only person who went through that program who didn't go back to jail, which they recognize as not a flaw in their program, but <laughs> as the rest of them being worthless criminals and I'm the only redeemable one. But I think that when you're constantly told that you are the disposable factor in a situation, that you become that if you're not a stronger-willed person or the smartest girl in the jail. <laughs> so, you know, I guess, I guess that's the whole thing. <laughs> Stephanie Holm, Raised by Wolves, is an activist, artist, and traveler. I caught up with Stephanie in July of 2020. A quick warning for sensitive listeners. Towards the end of our conversation, Stephanie describes assault with frank language. Are you practicing via Zoom 
with your band? So my band all works at our shop, aside from mm-hmm. our singer, who is the sister of one of our band members. Um, so we've been meeting in person because we already are around each other all day at work anyway. It's like at that right. point we're already pretty exposed, so we might as well. Yep. And are you performing? Are you streaming? We did some live streams when quarantine first started to happen for us, like when we were laid off from our jobs, but shelter in place hadn't been put into effect. And then when shelter in place happened, we all took it pretty seriously. Everybody stayed home, you know, for that amount of time. And then once, you know, the places that we were working at opened back up again, we were like, well, at this point, we might as well just start practicing in person. We are hoping to record an album this year. We have enough music for it and we're kind of ready to go on that front. But it's just a matter of like that being something we can do because I don't really know if people are doing that right now. Matt Matt Olson is. Oh, well, that's good to know. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And he's, I've worked with him before. He's awesome. Yeah. And we, um, we've been working on some merch. I've made some shirt designs and I'm screen printing those myself and stuff. So we've, we've got like a lot of, a lot of things, but do you, do you have your own screen printing setup, or do you use the Zach's? I have my own right now, yeah. I have used the Zach in the past, and I, I think if I was going to do something more complicated or, or trying to do a lot of shirts, that I would probably use their setup. But um, since we're kind of doing, like, print-to-order, I, I just have a small setup, and we're doing simple designs, and we just have three shirt colors and three ink options. What I've been doing it has actually been hand adding second color details myself just with like a brush. Because yeah. you can do you can do wet on wet with like a water-based ink and so I'll just do the like if it's like a black shirt and I'm putting a white design on it and I wanted like some yellow accents, I'll just do the whole thing in yellow and then or the whole thing in white and then I'll go in and add the the yellow on top of it by hand. And I, I feel like that's like right. been a, a good result, but that's only for a few things. If I was trying to do a whole bunch, it probably would wouldn't be worth it. Right, and it's yeah. fun too. If, if you're just if you're just kind of messing around and like having fun, yeah, for sure. And yeah. because I I do the t-shirt section at my job now, it's pretty easy for me to get mm-hmm. blank shirts at a lower cost. So it's not like terribly expensive on our end. You know, once you have right. all the supplies, so. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully people are into it. It's been kind of weird because I haven't felt like it's something that I should be promoting right now. I mean, even like thinking about live streaming or band practices, it's like we know why it's okay for us to be meeting, but that I feel like that might be hard to communicate as like setting a bad example for other people, you know? That makes sense. But I mean, I've seen all of the band members, except for the one you yeah. mentioned, at the shop. And it's, you know, I mean, it makes sense that you're allowed to get together. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Claire is Stu's sister, so they obviously see each other at their house. <laughs> so it's right. not, yeah. There's not a there's, a, there's a point at which it's like, I mean, if one of us 
got COVID at this point, we would all have to quarantine regardless. Where can people listen so to So I these? actually have it up on streaming, right? So it's called the Spooky Town Radio Show. And it's it's on like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stuff. It's available there. So anybody could subscribe to the Spooky Town Radio yeah. Show. It's all um, people from Missoula, uh, just voice actors from here in town. And all the Foley sound effects are, are things that we made ourselves for the most part. So, you know, when you hear like a door shutting or whatever, those are all real sounds that we recorded too. That's fun. Do you find yourself walking around when you are out and about recording just sound? I've tried a few things. Usually there's like a specific sound effect that I want to use and I'll try to like write a scene around that. Like, if I, if I get a really good, like, door creaking noise or something like that. I also recently have come across a some, like, you know, compilations of different sound effects for, like, cheesy horror movie things. So I've been using that to add, like, background music to scenes. But a lot of it, they'll be, like, like a dun-dun-dun on a piano. And, like, most of the time, like, we've actually recorded that on the piano or, you know, something like that. Right. Yep. I mean, I, I've started, since I've started editing audio, I pay attention mm-hmm. to sound more. And like walking across a wooden floor that's like a deck, a wooden deck, in your bare feet versus walking across the same floor in a pair of dance go shoes versus walking apl- across the same floor in a pair of combat boots, you know, like the sound is different, even performing the same activity. And I, I think it's fun to play with a sense of place using sound. Yeah, we haven't done this as much yet, but we're hoping later to maybe go to locations and just record a lot of ambient noises to use as like background noise for different scenes. Like, yeah. so that if, if people are in like a convenience store to just go and record some sound in a convenience store or something and just use that as some as some like flavor. But we'll we'll see like what is available. It's so it's it's a horror comedy podcast. It's based loosely off of a role playing game called Monster Hearts. But pretty nerdy stuff, stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been doing a lot of role playing games. Um, I had a D and D group for a little while that was uh, doing doing discord games and everything while while things were shut down so we were still calling each other and doing stuff i recently wrote a little tabletop game where you play as a shop cat (laughs) (laughs) um uh are the cats in the game named after the shop i did use their pictures as 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 illustrative <laughs> examples, yeah, it's it's called Perfect Crimes with the P U R. Of course it is. Uh. I, I got that. <laughs> I feel like I I've had a little bit more time to explore like those weird little creative projects. I learned how to sew. I've been working on that, which is something I always was interested in making clothes, but I never, you know, really sat down and like really tried to make myself do it. Because there's just, yeah, there's not, like, at least I don't feel comfortable, you know, going out and doing activities that much right now. Yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to minimize the number of, like, places I'm going and things that I'm doing. And then I just have a few things, like, you know, 
having band practice because I feel like those are those are reasonable. But yeah, I'm I'm really I haven't been to a restaurant and probably not going to one for, you know, the rest of this year. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm really surprised at how people are just, you know, not not wearing masks, not really it seems like they just got sick of taking precautions and or if they ever did it in the first place, you know. Right. Well, yeah. we'll see how this winter goes. I think it's going to be pretty pretty brutal. Yeah, for sure. I um at the beginning of the year, I had signed up for a CSA share. And so I just started getting that. But I remember, like, when we were having, you know, some grocery store shortages and stuff, like, thinking about how good it was that I signed up for that because it's just a local farm. There's no supply chain issues at all. They're, like, you know, and it was already paid for and they were doing just fine as, you know, a small group of people on their farm. So maybe, you know, considerations like that will make people kind of pivot to more local options. You told your story in the first year of Tell Us Something. It was October 9th, 2012. Yeah, it's, it's been a really that. long time. <laughs> it's been a long time. And that was the same night that the former owner of the Top Hat said goodnight and goodbye to essentially mm-hmm. her dad. So that's how long ago it was. It was before the remodel. It was still a dive bar. What was that experience like for you? Well, I think, I mean, if you've listened to it, I think you can tell that I was pretty nervous. I was, you know, I was pretty young also at that time, and I just had a lot of, like, stage fright. I was in college at the time, and I guess I still have this experience, but I have it a lot, or I had it a lot then when I was talking to people my own age, that, like, everybody's life experiences were so different from mine that when I would tell stories about my life, people would legitimately, like, not believe me. Or would think that that sounded, like, fake and made up. And I, I, I honestly, like, I feel like that still does happen because I've just had unusual experiences. Or, you know, bad experiences that people would like to pretend aren't something happening in their community. So I kind of wanted to tell that just to be like, hey, just so you know, like, this is, this is what's happening, you know, here. That's, this is what it's like for people. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was the power of your story. People have this perception of our town as being liberal and we take care of everybody. And But no, I mean, people are expendable in the eyes of the system. And you certainly were. I mean, I think that somebody in your... You even said in your story, like somebody told you, like, I'm not going to try to place you again. If Maureen disappears, you're going right back to jail. Yeah, yeah. His name was and <laughs> his his wife was my assigned therapist, so there was no real and I was required to go to therapy, so it's like there was no real confidentiality. Which is one of the things that I think about now when people are wanting to kind of pivot more towards uh, more social workers and away from police is how intertwined those systems are for us right now. Social workers and, and cops work hand in hand. I, I've had, you know, some pretty bad experiences with caseworkers when I was a kid, too. So I, I don't know if that's, like, 100% going to, to solve all of our inequality issues. 
I wonder if better training would be helpful with that too. Yeah, or or like, them being like not as as enmeshed into the system. I mean, the main the main issue in Montana is funding. We have yeah some of the highest like reported cases of child abuse of like any state. It's very high here, and we have some of the lowest funding. And so there just aren't enough places for kids to go if they're in dangerous situations. And so the state wants to place people back with their parents if they can justify it at all. And the number of people that I was in group homes with or that or that I was in, in prison with who went back to households that were very, very clearly unsafe and were causing a lot of the problems that were supposed to be addressed by incarceration, you know, it was ridiculous. One of the things that you did in your story that was so heartbreakingly beautiful and kind towards the end when you were talking about, and you didn't name the guy but that you just named <laughs> now, but you said that he talks about you in his programs and, the t you know, as your sort of success story, and you said, like, as if he had any role in that. And all of the rest of the people in the program all went back to jail and you were the only one who didn't. And the, the beautiful thing that you did was you said, you know, something about they didn't have self, enough self-awareness and this is, these aren't the words that you used, but they didn't have enough self-awareness to think that maybe there was a problem with their program and it wasn't the girls. And the fact that you were just giving that love to the girls, even just in that little tiny sentence was so cool. Well, some of the some of the people that I think about the most, well, if we're talking about, you know, systemic inequality, at least half of the of the girls that I was in prison with were Native American. And they're not half the population. And there there's a reason for that and it's because of the way that things are are governed on reservations. Reservations are not legally part of the state. They are part of our country, but they don't have to abide by state laws, which means that federal law enforcement and tribal police are the only people who are able to help with issues on the reservation. So if you get in trouble and you're from the reservation, it's immediately a federal offense. So the level, the level of incarceration that they experience when there are problems is extremely high. Ugh. That's so messed up. And there was one girl I, I remember who was very clearly mentally ill. Like, she had schizophrenia. She had, like, hallucinations that she would respond to, like, visual and auditory hallucinations. And she was repeatedly getting put in jail. I think when I was there, she was 15 and she had been there three times already. And it was for things like minor drug offenses, nonviolent things. When obviously what she needed was mental health help. And instead they just kept putting her back into her household, which had a lot of its own dysfunctions. And that's, that's just gonna, or as far as I know, that was her cycle for you know, the whole rest of, of her life when she was at least a teenager is just being on parole, getting a parole violation for some minor offense, going back to jail over and over and over again when really what she needed was, you know, mental health support. Yeah, 
I mean, that's... I think that's been the case for decades. Yeah. Right? You, yeah. Um, you did sound nervous, but you also sounded like, I need you to hear this. Like, that was sort of the attitude. It sounded like you were confident in that way. Like, And you told the story in such a compelling way, and I was so... I'm still so grateful that you wanted to share it. So I'm not in college now, but when I was going to school, I wanted to do creative writing. And I feel like people always wanted me to do memoir. And then also when I did it, I sort of felt like, I don't know, like a, like an object to them because it's like the things that I was, was trying, the stories that I was trying to tell them were so out of the norm for them that it didn't, it seemed like a fiction. It didn't seem like a real story that had really happened to them. Um, but I've been trying to, to work on doing that more just because of, you know, thinking about some of the different people that I was around who probably never were able to either get out of that cycle or have never been able to tell their story because it was too hard for them to, to say, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. But that's hard work because it's just, a, it's upsetting, you know? I've always been more interested in, like, speculative fiction because it's easier for me to do, but I, I kind of feel like people... I don't know. I probably have stories that it would be good for people to hear at the same time. Yeah. So I've been I've been trying to do more of that kind of stuff. Beyond the nervousness of telling your story, was there anything afterwards, after the event was over, did do you have anybody come up to you and say anything? Like out in town? Um there was one lady like right after I got off stage who I think said something to me along the lines of Oh, I always wondered, like, what what the deal with you was, or, like, something like that. So it kind of sounded like she'd, like, seen me around town and, like, noticed me or thought I was weird or something. Was just wondering, like, what, who that person is. I found kind of, like, a strange comment. I was like, I don't really know how to respond to that, but... <laughs> I imagine that, sh that, that like, it made her confront whatever assumptions she'd made about me. And she was like, oh, I've learned something. But it, I, I definitely took it as like, oh, I've seen you as a local weirdo. And I was wondering, like, why is that girl dressed like that? <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I, I remember that one specifically. I think that I had maybe one other person recognize me and, like want to be my friend after that but it was like it was kind of a it was kind of an odd individual so I don't think that really went anywhere but well and I don't know because I because I was um, a minor when all of this happened my record's been expunged and so I I guess I like am open about that with people that I know well, but it's not necessarily something that I, like, would open up with talking to people, like, normally, like, on, like, a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not like, by the way, I was in prison when I was a kid, like, but it's something that is definitely really present in my mind 
with political issues, like, I do... I don't know, I do consider myself to be an ex-con, even though that's not how I think most people perceive me or what they... or that they think about that. And so... I, I definitely, like, it's it's impacted the way that I, like, think about all of those issues and probably will for, like, the rest of my life. Sure. I mean, our whole outlook towards imprisonment, I think, has, has gotten worse over time, for sure. And I don't think, I, I mean, hopefully, you know, this moment that we're in right now when people are looking at the role of police, I think the natural next step is to look at the role of prisons and to to ask if, like, they're accomplishing the goals that we claim we want them to accomplish. Um, because I, I think it's, at least from my experience, I don't think anyone was helped by that. You know? I don't, I don't think that most of the girls that were there were truly a danger to the community. I think that they needed, they were people who were at risk at, in their homes and they didn't have another place to put them. There wasn't another option for them. And that's to say nothing of the situation, you know, of boys, which is way worse. I mean, the, in Montana, the, unless things have changed since then, they very well could have. It's been quite a while, but Riverside in Boulder is the girls' prison here in Montana. And it can only hold about 20 girls. Pine Hills is the boys, and it can hold 120 boys. So I'm sure that their situation is worse. And from what I've heard, it's much more violent there. So, yeah, I mean, you're taking people out of an abusive situation and putting them into a much more abusive situation... How is that going to help them improve their behavior? It's only going to make them more likely to respond to threats with violence because that's, those are the only tools they have. I mean, if what we actually wanted to do, if we're like, oh, I'm concerned that these children are committing crimes in the community. I'll just give you some examples of some of the, some of the crimes that people were, were in there for that I personally knew. There was a girl who was in there for check fraud because her mother had abandoned her and their other siblings for six months. And so they had just, they didn't know what to do. They didn't have anyone else to contact. So they were just writing checks to the grocery store. And I'm sure for also frivolous things, but they were writing checks off of her bank account. And when her mom finally showed back up, she decided that she wanted that money back. So she reported her daughter for this crime so that she could get you know, restitution fees from that. And when she was done with her stay in prison, that girl was put right back with her mom. Is that, like, is that a real solution to that too, problem? In time of COVID, you know, sometimes the safest place for kids is in school, and now they can't go to school, and they're forced to be with their abusers for the entire day. Yeah, and they're, they're not able to receive, you know, if they're a part of a school lunch program, that's gone now. I mean, the, the food bank has definitely been, you know, doing their best and working overtime. But I definitely, when I was a kid, I had to steal food from the grocery store because my parents weren't feeding us. That shouldn't, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't end up in jail for that. 
Yeah, I mean, is 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 the problem is the problem there that something was stolen from the store, or is the problem exactly. there that a twelve year old felt like they that was the only way for them to get food? I think it's just easier for people to to like feel sympathy for younger kids. Because when, like, a five-year-old acts out, everyone's, like, pretty sure that it's not their fault. Or at least, like, they're like, well, there's probably problems at home. But when, like, a 14-year-old is acting out, then people kind of are, like, annoyed by it. And they feel like maybe this is just a bad kid. I don't think we give kids enough, like, leeway as they get older to understand that, like, they don't have control of their situation. And that's why they're acting like that. Like, when you see, a, like, a toddler screaming in the store, your first response is to think that, like, oh, they're overtired, you know, whatever. They, like, they don't have control over their life. They've been pushed to a point that they're acting like this. But we don't, you know, we don't give teenagers that same breathing room or that same, like, sympathy. When you see teenagers coming into the store and acting out, how do you respond to that? I mean... I guess I haven't really had too many, like, teenagers acting out in the store. There are definitely some kids shoplifting, and I'll just be really straight with them about it, where I'm like, I see what you're doing. I know what this looks like, and I need you to stop doing this. That's pretty much what I do, because I don't have the ability to do too much more. But um, I I saw a lot more of that kind of stuff. I used to work overnights at a gas station, and there would be neighborhood kids that would try to come into the store and hang out, you know, at like midnight. A bunch of 12 year olds want to hang out in the gas station and mess around. And there was one girl in particular who would try to go up to cars outside and see if they, they could get money from people. Just ask like people who were stopping to get gas if they would give her a few dollars. And, and her I did pull aside and I was like, do you realize how close we are to the interstate? And that no one knows where you are. And that somebody could grab you. If you're out here at midnight, they know that there's nobody paying attention to you. Do you realize how fast you would be gone? You need to seriously consider the danger that you're putting yourself in right now. What did she say? She kind of like scoffed, you know, I think because when you're in a survival situation, you're like, well, I know this is dangerous, but this is what I need right now. But I didn't see her doing it again, at least when I was working there. So hopefully she found some better options. But I was like, I I know that there isn't help for you. Like, if I call the police, they're not going to help that person. I don't think there's any community support for that person. She's going to have to figure out how to help herself. Um, so I don't know. Usually I just kind of yeah, I mean, I don't really think there's anybody who can help those kids. I don't know who to direct them to. All, all I can do is, like, give them personal advice. Do you ever weigh in with any of these opinions at places like city council meetings or when they ask for public comment, you can type up an email or whatever and say, look, this has been my experience? Or do you think that's just not, it's not worth it? I guess I haven't, I mean, I don't really, I don't really know, like, the, I mean, the, the, like, the first issue is funding, for sure. 
we do not fund these services you know and people are happy to donate to like the watson children's home because it's it's children but as you get older they're less inclined to want to help you one of the big problems with finding placements for kids that have already been in trouble is that there are a lot harsher requirements to foster a kid that's been in jail you can't have any other children in the home for example and I think it's called something different. I, I think when I was doing it, it was called guide homes, but it might be different. But there, yeah, there aren't like, there aren't an adequate number of foster parents. There's not an adequate no amount of funding for group homes. There's like a lot more drug rehabs than there are any other types of shelters. Like every time that I got in trouble, because I would say, because I had an abusive home life, the the amount of times that the cops were called to our house because there was like, physical fighting going on was probably dozens of times and I would just temporarily you know be in a group home for a little bit and then they'd put me back with my mom and it just happened over and over again until eventually things escalated to a point that they put me in jail and every one of those incidences in my opinion was a self-defense situation for me where I did not initiate the physical altercation. But in the state of Montana, it's not illegal to hit your child with an open hand. That's considered corporal punishment and it's legal. So if your parents are like slapping you in the face and you hit them back, you did not defend yourself. That's assault. As, as a really absurd example, uh, one time I was being fish hooked. Like I, my mom was dragging me across the floor by my face and I bit her thumb because it was in my mouth. Oh. I got an assault ticket for doing that. And it's like I was being assaulted when that happened. So I like I really feel like the whole the whole system, you know, is so is so messed up that I don't really I mean you'd have you'd have yeah, to completely like, restructure it. Where do you even begin? <laughs> yeah, and people would have to consider it a priority and they'd have to you know I, I think that would be definitely like a step once people started considering you know their their opinion toward incarceration in general but yep i mean there there are whole towns like deer lodge that are just based off of their prison that's what everybody in that town does so like that's where all of their income comes from so are those people going to really question like their only source of income or is it easier for them to just decide yeah that everybody who's I mean, in that my dad jail was a cop there in ohio and that's how he feels if you're in prison you did something to deserve to be there and i'm just like dad that is not true you know well like 100 percent of people in jail definitely didn't do it like that's i mean even if you just like think about right. regular statistics of anything 100 percent of something it's not it can't possibly be true there's there's got to be at least one person that one yeah. little outlier who didn't do it and it's it's exponentially more than one person but even if we agree that the every person who's in prison committed the crime that they're in prison for if our goal is to to have people who have committed crimes reintegrate into society and and like be normal productive members nope. of it we are not achieving that We're not and so what's the answer we don't have, I mean, there's, we can't solve this now. You and I can't anyway, you know. 
yeah, I, I, I mean, hopefully as people start to consider what role the police should have in our society, that they can also then look at, like, what role prison should have. Because if you, if you don't have police arresting as many people, you're still going to have, in your community, there are going to be people that are committing crimes. There already are people that commit crimes that there really aren't any consequences for. I mean, you know, sexual assault is the first thing that comes to my mind as far as people who, I mean, I, I know, I can think of like probably five or six people just in the community off the top of my head that have never received any, you know, any justice. Yeah, and then that's a, a whole new conversation to talk about why people don't report and when they do report the victim blaming that happens and the re-traumatization of the person reporting yeah the the lack of testing like the the really low like amount of punishment that people receive even if they are convicted yeah i mean a whole a whole other bag of worms i don't think that the police are are effective at their stated goal and I don't even know if those goals need to be achieved, but we would have to build up whole other institutions to deal with these issues. And it could be done, but people would have to want to do it. Like, collectively, that would have to be a priority for everyone to think, okay, when there's a homeless guy on my property, you know, spanging for money, I want him to leave, but I don't want to call the cops. Who do I call? You know, and there are, like, homeless outreach things, but they don't have very much funding. So we would have to, we would have to want to help, you know, the Pavarello increase their staff so that they'd have somebody to come do that. We would have to increase wet shelters so that people who had been drinking would have a place to sleep regardless. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Each one of these things, you know, there are other systems that could probably more effectively help them, but we would have to prioritize doing that. Because the, I mean, every, every situation, every dangerous situation is, is a cop the correct person to come deal with this? Or could somebody else do a better job? Somebody with different and better training for the stated situation. Yeah, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be getting the same person to come take care of a dangerous dog in your yard that you would call if you were sexually assaulted, that you would call if there's a homeless guy, that you would call if your house got broken into. Those are not the same problems, and they can't all be solved by the same tool. Is there anything else that you want to say about your story before we wrap up? Um, well, if people like it, I'm I'm glad that they heard that. I would say that I was an outlier, at least as far as my, like, ability to, like, react the way that they want you to, to that situation. Because I I think a lot of people, if they were suddenly left on their own, you know, as a kid, I don't think they would just keep going to work, (laughs) which is what I did. They would probably freak out. and, And it definitely occurred to me, like, well, I've been told that if this if it, there's any problem, I'll just go back to jail. So now that there's been a problem, like, I think a lot of people would just freak out at that point because they already know that no one's going to help them. That's been their experience, that no one will help them. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that 
all the other people that they put in that situation had a bad outcome. Like they were set up to have that bad outcome. And I don't really know that that situation has changed. To my, to, to my knowledge, there hasn't been, you know, any changes to those programs, but... When you say that most people would freak out in the same circumstance, how did you not freak out? How did you keep moving forward? Well, I mean, I have really... I don't, I don't know if I want to say that I haven't respected authority, but I, like, from the... Like, I didn't have babysitters after I was four. And so for the majority of my life, I've been pretty responsible for, like, my own safety and, you know, taking care of whatever I needed to do on my own. And so I think that, like, that's always been my approach is, like, I have to solve this problem without generally thinking that, like, an adult would help me or I should be asking for permission from somebody. That was just my default. And so... It didn't really occur to me at the time, you know, to tell anybody about what was going on or to ask somebody about it. I just continued to do what I'd been doing because that was already the plan that I had in place. And I was like, well, I have no control over what she does or what they do about this. But maybe if I just, like, continue doing what I'm doing, everything won't totally fall apart or if they do decide to like put me back in jail at least maybe like my boss will still give me a good recommendation or something (laughs) like that I don't know I like I didn't I I was like I don't have control over what they do so I'm just gonna keep keep doing what my original plan was and hopefully it'll work out but I got told that things that I was that plans that I was making weren't going to work out and then I, like, basically made them work out through force of will, like, over and over in the course of being in the system. So I think I was kind of used to that being the outcome. When I first went to to Riverside, which is the, the girls' jail, their plan was that when I was done being there that I would go back to, to living with my mom and that I would go back to high school. And just with, like, the amount that that situation had escalated over the last couple of years... I was like, if I go back to living there, like, someone's gonna die. Like, it's getting to the point where I feel like it's going to, like, go somewhere really bad. So I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't go back there. So what do I need to do to not go back? So I stopped communicating with my parents at that point. I, yeah, at 16, I was like, I'm not gonna... If I, like, refuse to have a relationship with her and I refuse to talk to her and I'm extremely uncooperative with that, they'll have to find me another placement. And then I basically did a year and a half of schoolwork while I was there so that I could graduate. And they told me from the beginning, they're like, you're not going to be able to get enough credits to graduate and you're, you're going to have to go back with my mom. Neither one of those things happened because I, like, made them not happen. So... I don't know. I think, like, you just have to, whatever, like, your goal is, like, you just have to focus on that above what anyone else is telling you because they're probably, they're wrong. If you, like, if you dedicate everything towards one thing, you can accomplish that one thing. Stephanie Hone, everybody. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for spending the time with me this afternoon. Yeah, I have a band, I have a radio drama, I have a horse podcast books? where I review horse books. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <Yeah. laughs>
It's called past your bedtime. <laughs> oh man, I love that about you that you like puns as much as I do. Well, my my friend Melanie is a is a big horse book fan. She's been a horse girl her whole life, and I am not a horse girl. Although now people think that I am because I have this and they send me horse things. But essentially she has all of her childhood horse books, like the things that she was reading when she was like nine. And then I read them and I'm like, Melanie, did you realize this book is just about domestic violence? (laughs) She's like, no, what? (laughs) (laughs) I just, I'm going to subscribe as soon as we hang up. I want to be present with you right now, but, um, the, out to pasture? What is that? Is that what it's called? Uh, pa- pasture bedtime. Pasture bedtime. So they're horse, they're children's horse bedtime stories that you, you deconstruct them. Yeah, I just read the last the last season. We read the full Unicorns of Balinor series. <laughs> and now we're doing some like one shot horse books. We also did uh, one episode on Black Lives Matter and the, the protest horses. There's been a lot of people that have been bringing their horses to protests. The Compton Cowboys, there's the Fleet Street Writers Club, there's Nonstop Writers in Houston, and um, Brianna Noble, who I think a lot of people have seen pictures of her in Oakland with her, her horse Dapper Dan. I think the most interesting thing about all of those is like the immense level of training that an animal like that yeah. would require to be in a crowd. Every one of those people that you see bringing their horses to a protest just, like, put in so much work and time for them to be able to be in that environment. It's really impressive. Thank you, Stephanie. I will talk to you again soon, I hope, and stay safe out there. Thanks, Stephanie, and thank you for listening today. Though I was unable to find the podcasts that Stephanie hosts, you can head over to tellussomething.org to listen to some of those episodes. Next week, I catch up with Jim Byer. Oh, it was the Sturgis adventure, yes. Mission from God. Mission from God, yeah. Just, I practiced that for a week while driving around Montana. I just tell it to myself over and over and over again so that it would be shortened and uh, nearer to perfect. So, Tune in for his story and our conversation on the next Tell Us Something podcast. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersband.com. I am so excited to tell you that the next in-person Tell Us Something storytelling event will be March 30th at the Wilma. The theme is Stone Soup. Seven storytellers will share their true personal story without notes on the theme Stone Soup. We are running at 75% capacity, which allows for listeners to really spread out at the Wilma. Learn more and get your tickets at logjampresents.com. Thanks to our in-kind sponsors. Hi, it's Joyce from Joyce of Tile. If you need tile work done, give me a shout. I specialize in custom tile installations. Learn more and see some examples of my work at joyceoftile.com. Hey, this is Gabe from Gecko Designs. We're proud to sponsor Tell Us Something. Learn more at geckodesigns.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, including the family of ESPN Radio, The Trail, 103.3, Jack FM, and my favorite place to find a dance party while driving, U104.5. To learn more about Tell Us Something, please visit tellussomething.org.